Seth Godin says that the foundation of all real skills is the confidence and permission to talk to each other. No place is that more apparent than in our meetings. On this episode, Seth returns to help us move towards meetings of significance. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 632. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Conversation's a key word we talk about on the show, and is, as we all know, one of the realities of leadership is meetings for many of us. We love to hate meetings, and yet we can do so much better by thinking about meetings, not just as meetings, but thinking about conversations. There's so much opportunity for us to do better and to invite people into conversations that help us to move forward in a significant way. I first came across the work of today's guest when I bought the book Permission Marketing almost 25 years ago. That book still influences my work each day. I'm glad to welcome back to the show Seth Godin. Seth is the author of 21 international bestsellers that have changed the way people think about work. His books have been translated into 38 languages. Seth writes one of the most popular marketing blogs in the world, and two of his TED Talks are among the most popular of all time. He's the founder of the Alt-MBA, the social media pioneer Squidoo, and Yoyodyne, one of the first internet companies. His blog is at seths.blog, and his newest book is The Song of Significance, a new manifesto for teams. Seth, welcome back to the show. Well, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for showing up the way you do day after day, it makes a difference to a lot of people. And the same to you. I, 25 years ago, I read Permission Marketing. I think I got something in the mail from you years ago. You used to do some sort of mail or, because am I remembering you used to do it like a cassette audio or something in the mail around that time that you sent out to people? Does that sound familiar at all? My guess is that it was Success Magazine or someone like that. I have never done that, but I've done so many other crazy schemes and fun plans that it's entirely possible. I remember seeing your picture in my mailbox when I was early in my career, and I would pull it out and I would just dive in on whatever you had written because you've always been so forward-thinking for all of us on moving us forward and finding the word you highlight in this book, significance in our work. And you articulate three songs in this book. The Song of Safety, The Song of Increase, and The Song of Significance. Maybe that's a good place to start. What are the three songs, and how do you see them showing up today in our teams and organizations? You know, the the people who listen to your podcast care a lot. Many of them have authority. Some of them are managers. All aspire to be leaders. And getting the words right is super important because it opens the door for us to be able to do our work. I learned about the song of increase from Jacqueline Freeman. It's what happens in a feral beehive at the end of a long winter when the maidens will instruct the rest of the hive that it's time. And it's a fairly long story, but the short version is within a 15-minute period of time, more than 10,000 bees will all leave the hive. They will take the queen with them, They will leave behind the babies and the honey, all of it. And that leap into the unknown, 
is what permits the hive to evolve. That leap is at the essence of their journey. And then they only have three days to find a new place to live. And they have to maintain a body temperature of 98 degrees, amazingly. So they will form a very tight ball in a tree. And that's the song of safety. And everyone who's listening to this has experienced that. Hunkering down, waiting for things to get better. And sometimes we get stuck in that way of thinking. And we're not bees. And so what inspired me in writing this book was to realize there's a third song, one that sounds more like the song of increase. And this is the song of significance. This is what it means to have the best job you ever had. This is what it means to work with people who respect you and give you a chance to exceed your own expectations. It's what it means to be alive and not just be a cog in a machine. And now, as we live in this world filled with AI and outsourcing and tech layoffs and everything else, it's so easy to just say, I'll sing the song of safety. And what I'm trying to do is help people realize that they can do better than that. And one of the places we can do better is in how we meet and in how we have conversations. And there's a whole section in the book about meetings, and it's titled Meetings as a Symptom. What's the symptom? Right. So this is why it's worth being in the book, because I could write a whole book about how bad meetings are. I've written 100 blog posts about it. But when we look at the widespread dissatisfaction that every single participant in a meeting professes to have, we need to ask, why are we still having them in an era where we can transcend time and space, when Zoom permits us to meet with anyone anywhere in the world, and where pre-recorded video and memos, unlike the days of the caveman, permit us to engage with each other asynchronously. And so I think the symptom is managers need to be in control. And when we have remote work, they're taking attendance. When they can call a meeting and pontificate in real time for 45 minutes, they're showing their power and also maximizing their time, not the time of everybody else in the meeting, however. And so my argument is, if you can even see how selfish, non-productive, and enervating meetings are, you can start to understand how they're the fact that we tolerate them is a symptom of what's wrong with work and that you as a manager have a chance tomorrow to start changing that. You make an invitation for us to shift to conversations, which I mentioned in the intro. What's different between meetings and the traditional way people think about them and having a conversation? I think that most managers don't want to have a conversation because a conversation is people alternating between talking and listening. But if you're a pivot person and you have a boss and you have employees, you're not really there to listen to them giving you pushback on what your boss told you to do. You're there to inform. And that is what we call a meeting. A conversation is different. A conversation is two people who might change their mind in any given moment having a dance. Three people, four people. And so I don't go to meetings. I have conversations all the time, but I haven't been to a meeting in a long time because what I'll say to people, I have enough independence to do this, is send me a memo or send me a five-minute video. But if you are going to just talk at me, I don't need to be there in real time. What is it about making that shift to having more conversations that we seem to resist so much in teams and organizations? Well, so I think that most managers would like to think of themselves as leaders, 
But what leaders do is voluntary. They create the conditions for people to get to where they are going. We have to look at work in most of the developed world as voluntary. You have to work somewhere, but you don't have to work here. And if people are voluntarily working here in an era of work remote, which means that the number of places they could work without upending their family is very large. What are we doing to make their day as energizing and productive as it can be? And if your job is to create the conditions for that, tell me again why you have a daily check-in. What is actually happening at that check-in that is helping people feel connected and part of something that couldn't be more easily replaced by something asynchronous? And contrast that with all the conversations you're not having three-minute, four-minute, seven-minute conversations with multiple people to actually hash something out, to talk and to listen. We're not doing that because it threatens our status. It undermines the authority that comes with management and replaces it with the voluntary nature of leadership. But creating those conditions, I think, is the future. I highlighted a line in the book that just leapt out at me. You write, no one likes being lectured, and they like it less when it's in real time and masquerading as a conversation. And yet, I see this so much in organizations. I still occasionally find myself doing it, Seth. And as I'm, as I'm thinking about that reality that so many people face, what have you seen that works to break that traditional thinking a bit and enter into a place of more significance. Okay, so let me give you some concrete examples because there are a lot of hard-headed people who are listening to this who get stuff done. And it's one thing to have somebody who has no employees pontificate about it. It's another thing to see how it can be done. So I spent over a year of my life as a full-time volunteer, 10 or 12 hours a day, six or seven days a week for more than a year, organizing a 97,000-word book called The Carbon Almanac. Carbon Almanac has been translated into many languages around the world, won a worldwide design award. It's been a bestseller in a bunch of countries. It is a 200 plus page examination of our climate. I assembled a team of 300 people, most of whom I've never met, all of whom are volunteers. Now it's up to 1,900 people. We, we had people in 40 countries on the core team. We never once had a meeting. We built this book in five months. We delivered it ahead of schedule, footnoted, designed, laid out in typeset with no errors in less than five months. How is that possible? It's possible because if you find people who are aligned, if you establish standards, if you say we are going to criticize the work and not the worker, if we show our work, if you create the condition for asynchronous improvement, and you intentionally build a culture of respect, the stuff you can get done is amazing. And then from a for-profit point of view, there's a company called Automatic, Matt Mullenweg runs, and Matt has more than 2,000 employees. They don't have an office, and they power more than a third of the entire internet. And you read about Google and Facebook and others hitting the wall, but Automatic hasn't hit the wall. And the reason they haven't is Matt's job isn't to tell people what to do. Matt's job is not to predict the future. Matt's job is to create the conditions for the right people to get the job done. And so 
It works in book publishing. It works in tech. It works in spiritual institutions. And it works at any place where you are finding people living in the liminal space between today and tomorrow. And industrialists are living in yesterday, trying to get stuff done faster and cheaper, but that's not going to get us to where we need to go. You highlight the Carbon Almanac in the book, and you talk about some of the things that emerged in that experience. And one of them was something you call page 19 thinking. And I think you cited Anne-Marie Cruz in the book of highlighting some of the steps. Tell me about what page 19 thinking is and how was it helpful? So it's super simple and really unsettling to industrialists who have to have the right answer. And what we said is, look, it's November. We know in four months we're going to have a done almanac, a finished almanac, and there will be a page 19 in that book. And we also know that there isn't one person in this community who knows everything that they need to know to make page 19. There isn't one person who can research it, fact check it, write it, edit it, typeset it, add the graphs and charts, and and then footnote it. But it will happen. So how are we going to get from where we are to there? And the answer is, we will begin. We will ship the work to each other and say, here, I made this. Please make it better. Please take this work and make it better. And this mindset actually happens at every successful organization, that Sergey and Larry did not personally create the results of the last search you did on Google, right? That over time, two people became 10 people, became 100 people, and now the search you just did happened. And page 19 thinking says, don't ship junk, put your name on it. But when you hand it to the next person, you don't have to apologize, nor do you have to promise that it's perfect. All you have to do is say, this is going to get us closer to where we seek to go. That resonated with me a lot when I read it. And it, it coming, coming back to thinking about that from the lens of what we traditionally think about through meetings, there's a shift here especially in, an, in a meeting environment, from attendance to contribution, that that's the cultural shift. And it, it gets people thinking and showing up in a different way, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, so I have run things that people call meetings for years. I mean, I, I started the Alt-MBA. I started Akimbo. I don't own or run either of them. But I'm talking about hundreds of people in many countries and tens of thousands of students. And by necessity, I couldn't lecture at people. It wouldn't be helpful. You can use the magic tools of distributed work to create an hour that is so engaging and also exhausting, but not enervating, where everyone is contributing, that we've got breakout rooms, we've got chat, we've got documents open in the side, that if I really want my team to brainstorm their way from where we are to a solution, I'm not going to get on a call hog the microphone and talk to them for 25 minutes. What I'm going to do, perhaps, is open a shared Google Doc, get everyone on a Zoom call, establish the problem for four minutes, and then have people type in real time right in front of each other. And we'll see who's doing the typing and who isn't. And for people who aren't inclined to be buzzer managers and know how to go quickly, I'll announce the problem on Monday and we'll do the session on Tuesday. But the point is, if you watch the Beatles documentary, that the three-parter that was so good. And you watch how Paul McCartney worked with the other Beatles to write a song. It's not that everyone gets an equal chance to say an equal amount of stuff, but it mattered that Ringo was in the room. 
it you could see that when John showed up, Paul's attitude changed. And that is not happening in most organizations at most meetings. And what we're doing instead is simply taking attendance. It's a shift from an industrial meeting to a meeting of significance. Exactly right. We all love to hate Zoom, right? I've heard that so many times over the years, and I've used the analogy that blaming Zoom for a bad meeting is like blaming the gas company because your dinner got burned, right? It's it's a it's a medium, but it's not it's not the it doesn't really it's a tool, but it's not the thing that actually creates value. And for the person listening to this who's been in that mindset of like these Zoom meetings, I'm I'm leading I find myself as a manager leading a team and we're doing a lot of reporting checking in, talking about what people did, what's next on the agenda, those kinds of things. When you started doing this, Seth, and you've been doing this for a while, well, what's a starting point? What's a first shift that either in thinking and actions that helps a person to begin to just move forward a little bit? Well, I think we need to have a Zoom agreement. And it has elements like, if you promise to actively participate, I promise not to waste your time. If I call a meeting, you have the option to not come. If you come, you're not going to do it from your car. You're not going to check email because you wouldn't do that if you were on a date. So let's make it at least that important. If we can say to somebody, oh, you're calling this meeting, but the last three times we had this regular meeting, it was just a memo. Please send me a memo instead. We should have enough respect in and among our team that we can say that without worrying we're going to get fired. That a memo is a magical form of communication. It shouldn't be replaced by a real-time performance if it doesn't need to be a real-time performance. So you as the leader slash manager can set the tone that there's this great book called Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. And I wish I could just steal that title (laughs) because we need to bring that attitude to meetings. What is this meeting for? After this meeting, How will things be different? If you're not willing to make things different, then let's not play. Send a memo instead. You know, I just sent, I just made a six minute video to share with some people. And it took me two hours to make the six minute video the way I wanted it to be. And it will take them, if they have that cool little tool that speeds things up, four minutes to watch it. That is an appropriate balance of time because I shared it with a lot of people. So everyone comes out ahead. Whereas if I had been making stuff up as I went along, it would have only taken me six minutes to make the video, but it would have wasted a lot of people's time. You're taking the responsibility first as the person who's convening a meeting, an interaction, a conversation to first decide what is it for. But then you're spending the time up front to send the message well, if it's sending the message, but also framing what are the guidelines and expectations for how we show up and a bit of the culture too. That's right. And you know, one of the rules inside the almanac was criticize the work, never, ever criticize the worker. And that's been missing for a long time in the industrial world. It's been used as an excuse to maintain caste status roles. It's been used to marginalize people, to bring misogyny to the table, because we somehow managed to keep criticizing the worker, not the work. Mm. And what I think is going on here is that people who have authority 
have to give up a whole bunch of power to create culture. Culture is what are things like around here? What do we do when we're doing our best work? Well, if you want to maximize power, the answer is, oh, you disagreed with me in a meeting, I'm going to fire you in front of everyone, right? Oh, we're only down to two senior engineers and you're one of the two, you're gone, goodbye. We see billionaires having stupid power plays all the time, but that doesn't increase their impact, it doesn't increase their power because they forgot to create the conditions for better. And I feel really strongly about this, particularly after working so hard on the carbon book, which is we poisoned the whole planet. We made ourselves rich by digging fuel out of the ground and burning it. And what did we get, right? We got enough toys. We, we paved the earth. What did we get? Did we get a better life? And now in this very brief moment, I think the people, the kind of people who are listening to you and I talk are the people who could change the conditions, who could actually do better by doing well and do well by doing better. Thinking about what you just said, and one of the, probably the paragraph I love most in the book that I highlighted is this one. I'll read it. If an employee at your organization took home a brand new laptop every day, you'd have them arrested or at least fired. If your bookkeeper were embezzling money every month, you'd do the same. But when an employee demoralizes the entire team by undermining a project, or when a team member checks out and doesn't pull his weight, or when a bully causes future stars to quit the organization, too often we shrug and point out that this person has tenure or key vocational skills or really isn't so bad, but they're stealing from us. I've seen this so many times. It's a thinking error we make as leaders in organizations. How do people start to interrupt that error? So let me tell you when that occurred to me for the first time. I was building one of the very first internet companies, and I was lucky enough to work with some all-stars. And I think we had probably 18 people at the time. And one of the people on the team was a yeller, and he was yelling at somebody. And I walked over and I said, you got time to go for a walk? And the two of us went outside. And I said to him, if you ever raise your voice at someone on our team again, I will fire you on the spot in front of everyone. And he never did it again. And I meant it. He knows that I would have done that. Because either you're going to build a company with an asterisk after each one of the things that went wrong, or you're going to build a culture. You can't have it both ways. And it worked out for both of us in that setting. But if it hadn't, if he couldn't have maintained his cool, everything would have been better without him. And I think we don't see that nearly enough. Silicon Valley puts up with a lot of people who aren't willing to put in the extra minute of effort that it takes to change things. And they do it because they can get away with it. For the person listening who's thinking, I wish I could have that conversation, but I feel like I can't because HR, because culture, because policy, whatever, can't say that out loud. Where do you invite them to start? Well, the first thing I would remind them is that HR is a fascinating phrase because industrialism started with machines. Henry Ford invested in some machines that enabled uh, him to make cars more efficiently. And then he met a guy named Frederick Taylor and Frederick Taylor brought a stopwatch to the table and suddenly humans weren't people anymore. They were a resource. And the very phrase human resources says that these are people we're trying to get something from. and. What I would say is that you, the leader, have more influence and power than you know. And if you insist 
on building an institution, even your section of an institution that is filled with respect and possibility and gets enormous amounts of things done, I think you'll be amazed at how much HR lets you do that. You talk in the book also about soft skills, a term many of us have heard and used over Mm -hmm. the years. You invite us to think about framing soft skills a bit differently. What, What should be different? All right, so false proxies are a real problem. We see false proxies all the time. On social media, meta, those people who like you don't really like you and they're not really your friends. That somebody who can type a lot of words per minute, that doesn't mean they're a good writer. It just means they can type a lot of words per minute. That in Michael Lewis's great book, Moneyball, we've realized that Billy Bean figured out that the statistic that every other baseball club was using to figure out who to draft wasn't related to whether they were going to be useful on a baseball team or not. And so when we see caste and other injustices perpetuated, is largely because of false proxies. In our head, we think that people who look like us or act like us will be better employees. In our head, we think that someone who went to a certain kind of famous college will have better output than someone who didn't because we don't know what else to measure. And now what we've discovered is that it's not that hard to measure what really makes a difference. And it tends to be human skills. It tends to be people with persistence and grit or kindness, people who are willing to live in the liminal space between here and there, people who are good at getting other people to speak up. That when we assemble the right group of humans in a room, they almost always outperform people who score well on the false proxies. If we think about Steve Ballmer, Steve Ballmer almost destroyed Microsoft and missed four out of the four most important revolutions of the biggest decade in tech. He did that while surrounded by people who were off the charts in any measurable technical skill. But what was missing was patience and situational awareness and this the essence of teamwork that is the opposite of bullying. That when we can be present and see what is actually happening and do something with it, the place we work does better than if we just say, let's march faster without noticing that you're marching off a bridge. You write that the foundation of all real skills is this one, the confidence and permission to talk to each other, not to manage, belittle, intimidate, or control. Simply seek to be understood and do the work to understand. I think about that and how often that conversations come up in between our members and listeners about handling tough situations. And we've featured Jonathan Raymond's work on the accountability dial on the show before. And one of his invitations is to be having regular conversations every single day. And when we talk about those conversations with our, with our members and listeners, everyone espouses that. They get it. Mm-hmm. And yet, actually having conversations each day and leaning into that is something that I find that very few people do consistently. There's something about us getting into, and to your point, like really smart, talented people who are part of our community, but there's something about having a title of vice president or director where there's a stopping point there. It's really hard. It's really hard. And one of the best reasons to call it work, because it's really hard. It's even hard in our personal life. So It was heartbreaking years ago when I had nine people in my office for six months. 
I volunteered to to run a seminar, and it was life changing for me and for each of the nine people. But I made lunch for everybody every single day, and I was going through a phase, and lunch was the same. And after I think three weeks, Al said, "Seth, I don't like tofu." And I was like, <laughs> "Al, why did you wait three weeks? Thank you for telling me now, but for." 15 days in a row, you ate something for lunch you did not like. What, what, what was going on, right? And it's even in an informal setting like that where we were all volunteers, the indoctrination and the wiring is, well, if someone's being gracious, you're not supposed to speak up. If someone's your boss and telling you what to do, you're not supposed to speak up. You're supposed to just row harder. And the opposite of that, is, of course, is to be a snowflake who's whining about every single thing, and that's not going to work either. But too often, managers don't invite people to talk about how they can get to what they enrolled to do. And so this distinction is super important. If you are organizing a a ski trip and somebody who's on the trip really wants to go surfing, it is not appropriate for them to whine about the fact that it is cold out because you told people before you left, you were going on a ski trip. So you're enrolled in a journey. You're allowed to say, this conditions on this slope aren't as good as the conditions on that slope. Let's go over there. Because we all agreed that we're here to ski, and that's better skiing. But what you're not allowed to do is say, I hate you all, we should be surfing instead. And so this conversation has to begin with enrollment. What change are we seeking to make? Who are we seeking to influence? Is there a better way, given the constraints we've all agreed on, Given the goals we all say we have, is there a better way to get from here to there? And what is missing is the precursor steps of describing the constraints, describing the objectives, describing who we're seeking to to change. If we can't agree about that, then it's really hard to have a conversation because we don't want to reveal that we're all on different buses. You have earned a lot of influence because of your work over the years. And I seem to recall hearing you say on a podcast a while back that it's a real gift for someone to actually speak up and to say something that might be intimidated because of a person's brand or position or influence. And I bet you run into this a bunch. And I'm I'm wondering, what, if anything, have you found that's helpful for someone like Al to say something on day one or two or three instead of day 15? Have you found something that works a bit on doing that? Well, I've known Al now for more than 10 years. He's much, much better at not just talking about what he eats, but at describing his journey. And I don't think he minds me saying this. He's written a couple of best-selling books, and I learned a lot about meetings from Al. I think what I'm getting at is this. If you need a hack, we're having the wrong conversation. What I am trying to encourage people to do is start small and learn new habits that undo the indoctrination of all of those years of school and work. There isn't a simple hack, and then you can get back to the way the world is of, will this be on the test? How do I get an A? Where's my promotion? What I'm trying to help people see is that we're fish in water, and there is water. And The approach is simply to say, is there anyone in your life where you are enrolled in a similar journey where you can have a conversation about how to get to where you're going? Find one person and then increase 
from there. It's so rare. I had a business partner 50 years ago, 42 years ago, and Steve and I could have this conversation, but they don't come naturally. We have to decide that that is what we are here to do, to have conversations, to make the culture better, to enable people to have significant lives at work and at home. I often ask people what they've changed their minds on because leaders, experts are always learning and growing, right? As you have written this book and had the conversations about it with so many others, over the last year or two, what's one thing you've changed your mind on? You know, it's interesting because we tend to reward people who stick with their guns and then find out that they were right. So I was right that NFTs were a scam. And a lot of people yelled at me at when the bubble was at its peak. And so it's easy to be sort of self-congratulatory that you stuck to your knitting or stuck to your focus on that. But when I think about how wrong I was and so many other people were about the dynamics of the internet and how it would be an unalloyed good to just let everybody speak up anonymously as often as they wanted to in front of as many people as they could, that seems so naive after the fact. And I, starting about five years ago, became really disillusioned about the state of humanity when it came to what people would do if they thought no one was looking, if they were pushed by greedy social media companies to pick a fight, they would. And I'm pleased to say that since I began working on first the Carbon Almanac and then this book, a lot of my faith in humans with a small h has been restored. That when you look closely at people who had a choice, when they made the choice, they often bend things toward justice. And so I'm a lot less cynical than I was and a lot more hopeful that good people working with good people can make things better. Seth Godin is the author of The Song of Significance, A New Manifesto for Teams. Seth, thank you so much for the generosity of your work. Thank you, Dave. I could talk to you all day. What a pleasure. The pleasure is mine. If this conversation with Seth was helpful, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 306, Five Steps to Hold People Accountable. Jonathan Raymond was my guest on that episode. We talked about his fabulous accountability dial, an important tool for managers to have conversations with employees, with colleagues about accountability and so much more. And often that is the catalyst for conversation. One of the invitations Jonathan makes to us is to regularly be making mentions. That's the kickstart of the conversations that we talked about in today's episode, episode 306 for more on that. I'd also recommend episode 344, The Way to Have Conversations That Matter. Celeste Headley was my guest on that episode, an expert on conversations, has a viral TED Talk, a wonderful book, so much great perspective from her on how to really engage in meaningful conversations. Obviously, a wonderful compliment to this conversation. Also recommended episode 358 with Mamie Canfer-Stewart, How 
how to lead meetings that get results. Mamie is the host of the Modern Manager podcast. We talked on that episode about meetings and the purpose behind meetings. We all know meetings should have purpose, but we don't often take the next step to actually identify what that purpose is, espouse it in the conversation, and utilize it in order to craft our agenda. We talk in detail in episode 358 on how to do that. And oh, by the way, who do you invite? Who do you inform? How do you go through the decision process of doing that? We all do some of that every day, but we don't think about it strategically. Episode 358, the how-to, a great compliment to this conversation, of course. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 551, How to Use Power Responsibly. Vanessa Bonds was my guest on that episode. Her book is titled, You Have More Influence Than You Think. Oftentimes, we do have more influence than we think, especially as managers and organizations. We don't realize how much a passing thought or not preparing for a conversation influences both good or bad the outcomes. Taking some time to think about that influence and, of course, then taking action. Key, Vanessa reminds us of the importance of that influence and the position power that many managers do have. Episode 551 for more on that. All of those episodes you can find, of course, on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't done this before, take a moment to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. You're going to get access to a ton of free benefits all of the audio courses in the website, the ability to search all of the past catalog by topic, and also access to my library. I am cataloging articles, YouTube videos, podcast episodes from other podcasts every single week. I'm databasing them. I'm sharing them in the weekly guide, but I'm also giving you full access to all of that. If you click on Dave's library, once you set up your free membership, you will see a place where you can track down everything I've been cataloging for years. A much easier way than finding things on your own. I've already done the work for you. If you're looking for a credibility piece or an article or something that'd be helpful to you on your next step or the next step for someone you're supporting. It's a great place to start. Coachingforleaders.com to set up your free membership. And maybe you've been a free member for a while and you're looking for something more. You may want to find out about Coaching for Leaders Plus. Coaching for Leaders Plus has a ton of additional benefits, and one of them is topic guides. Topic guides go into much more detail than I do at the end of every episode where I mention a couple of other episodes you may want to listen to, but in the topic guides, we go way further than that. I provide a detailed video overview with some of the expert influence and perspective that I've heard from the experts and what episodes to listen to in order on a very specific topic. One of them is how to drive innovation. So I walk through exactly what episodes I think you should listen to, what's the order, what are the key points, and then also what are the key questions you should be asking yourself and others in order to drive your leadership development and to help you to move forward. That's just one of the major benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. If you'd like to find out more, go over to Coaching for Leaders. Plus. And also, I hope you'll join me next Monday for our next conversation. It's with Tiffany Bova on how to improve the experience for both customers and employees. Yes, we can do both. Tiffany has a wonderful message for us next week. Join me for that conversation with her. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Take care. <music>